Please turn with me as well to uh, Psalm 119, verse 97. Psalm 119, verse 97, verse, through verse 104. And hear the word of God. Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. You, through your commandments, make me wiser than my enemies, for they are ever with me. I have more understanding than all my teachers, for your testimonies are my meditation. I understand more than the ancients, because I keep your precepts. I have restrained my feet from every evil way that I may keep your word. I have not departed from your judgments, for you yourself have taught me. How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Through your precepts, I get understanding. Therefore, I hate every false way. Let us pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the laws contained therein. Those same laws which you write on our hearts, and yet uh, we are so slow to learn and to know and to understand ourselves and the work of the Spirit that we need to see that work And that law reflected in your word. And then we begin to understand. And so teach us, O God, through your word and your law. Teach us through uh, the psalmist experience what it is to have true devotion. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Last week, uh, two weeks ago actually, we finished Hebrews. And then last week we had a standalone sermon, uh, Psalm 133. Another standalone sermon this week. And then I think... Uh, after this brief break in series exposition, we had a major study in Hebrews. We're about to begin a major study in Romans, which will go along nicely, I think, with the Sunday School on Justification. Uh, and yes, that will be a long study on justification, just as Hebrews is a long study on, uh, on the priesthood of Jesus Christ. I think these things are really beneficial for the church. But for now, we're taking a brief break. Uh, yet at the same time... Uh, I would also note that in many ways this sermon goes along with the evening series because as we work through Exodus, we are presently uh, going through a careful study of the Ten Commandments. And this is a sermon this morning on the law of God and how the believer feels about the law of God. And so I hope this will be a help and a boost to that series as well and your reception of it. In that series, we'll look at it as a mini-series within a larger series on the Ten Commandments from the book of Exodus. I dealt with the law generally first, one sermon on the law, and then very specifically, as you know, we're working through the, the commandments one by one. Going back to that general introduction, I gave a kind of survey of the law. And if you remember, uh, before I preached, I said, and throughout the sermon, that I would have many negative and denigrating statements about the law of God. Uh, which is right and proper. But I also had many positive statements about the law. I want to interact with that thought a little bit here in the introduction to this sermon. But let us notice first that everything in this psalm is positive. It's all positive. Verse 97, oh, how I love your law. And from there he goes on to express how much he loves it. In fact, You see, in his assessment of the law, he has nothing but the best things to say. 
And such is the nature of Psalm 119, which we uh, began to go through in the responsive reading from the Psalter selection. The whole psalm is a testimony and an expression of the love which he has for the law. Psalm 19 as well. And then also, obviously, Psalm 1. All of these, uh, in all of these, the Old Testament saint is expressing his love, his deep love for the law of God. He's saying, in essence, oh, how I love your law. And the Psalms, as you remember, express the heart and the soul of Old Testament religious devotion, more so than anything else in the Old Testament. And this devotional statement from the Old Testament or Old Covenant expression is full of positive assessments of the law, not just those three Psalms. But the, the, the question I have is can we still say this? Can we still utter the words uttered here, oh, how I love your law? Because, uh, returning to the question, what about uh, the negative assessment of the law, uh, which we find in the New Testament? The many denigrating statements, as I say. Well, such statements, I won't uh, recount them here, but I'm sure you're familiar with them. The law works wrath, it works condemnation, and so forth, all of which I think I've been honest about in preaching Exodus. Such statements have led many believers to conclude that the law is not something lovely or good, but the law is something bad. And in fact, in a new covenant setting, to say something like, oh, how I love your law, is of the very essence of legalism. I think that's a very common thought which is had today amongst Christians. To love the law is to be a legalist. Maybe not in the Old Covenant days, but now in the New Covenant days. Yet, if you were to examine those passages in the New Testament, which expresses New Covenant devotion, those passages which denigrate the law closely, you will see that they are statements with regard to a sinner's justification. There's that word again. How it is a man is made right and acceptable in the eyes of God, he being a sinner. Well, he isn't justified by the law. If he seeks justification by the law, he's condemned. The law works wrath, not life, not justification, not righteousness. And so the law's tendency in this regard to condemn is emphasized in order to magnify this aspect and to cause guilty sinners to seek refuge not in their good works, but in the gospel. In other words, what is being magnified is man's dilemma in order to underscore the remedy which is offered in the gospel. That's exactly how Romans proceeds, by the way. He begins with the wrath of God, which is revealed against all unrighteousness and sin, chapter 1, verse 18. And he goes on to the middle of chapter 3. And then he begins in verse 21 of chapter 3 to unfold uh, the, the riches and the glory of the gospel. But do you realize, and Paul points this out in Romans chapter 4, that the situation was no different whatsoever in the Old Testament. That they were not justified by the law either. That David and Abraham were justified not by works, but by faith in Jesus Christ. And so it's not true to say, if we were to locate the reason why they loved the law, it is not true to say that they loved the law because they were justified by it. Whereas the, the Christian now has certain reservations about the law because we live in the full light of the grace of the gospel. No. Again, 
One of the central assertions of the New Testament, especially in such passages where the law is denigrated as a means of justifying the sinner, is that the Old Testament saints were justified not by works of the law, no more than we. They, like us, believed and by faith were justified. And so the law was no more their salvation than it was ours. And if you think in terms of uh, the Psalter as a book uh, as a whole, you will find those same truths expressed in the Psalms, expressing the piety and the devotion of the Old Testament saints, especially in the penitential Psalms, where they speak of the blessings of finding forgiveness. Forgiveness for whom? For lawbreakers. For those who cannot find justification by works of the law. How blessed is the man uh, whom the Lord forgives. You find those kinds of statements throughout. And so they knew as well as we that we could only be justified by God's grace through faith. And yet, they still loved God's law. Not as a means or principle of salvation, but as something else. The ways and reasons they loved it will become clear in a moment. He tells us why he loved the law. And I hope to unfold that. But you see, if they loved it, so should we. And so my central assertion this morning, and the main thing I want to impress upon you in preaching this sermon, is that every Christian should be able to say what is said here, very simply, Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day, and so on and so forth. Here is a prayer for the Christian. You see, he's almost surprised by it. That's the first thing we notice. Oh, how I love it. I almost can't believe that a sinner such as I could love it so much. The promises maybe, but the law. Yes, I love it too. Yet such is the feeling I find in my heart when I consider and meditate upon this law. I find that I love it. Such is the sentiment which is expressed here. A surprising joy which the believer finds in his heart for the law of God. And how did he ever come to possess it? How did he ever, to his own surprise, find that he loved God's law so much as to say, oh, how I love your law? Well, really, that is uh, the first thing I want to consider. The first main point, why he loved, or how he loved it, rather. And then we'll see why he loved it. And that is answered immediately. He loved it by meditating upon it, or he found that he loved it. He discovered in his own heart that he loved it by meditating upon it. Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. And that word meditation recurs. Uh, Verse uh, 99 for your testimonies are my meditation. And I believe it happens uh, again. The word occurs again, though I'm not sure where. Or at least in those two places. But what does he mean by meditation? Well, by meditation, he means a subject of deep personal reflection. That's the kind of activity he's engaged in with respect to God's law. Uh, Matthew Henry says, by meditation, we preach to ourselves. I like that way of putting it. The man who meditates upon something is preaching to himself. He's arguing with himself. He's taking the message of God's law and applying it to his heart. And then he wrestles with it in a searching way with his own life and his own tendencies and so forth. Just as the preacher seeks to do in the sermon. Meditation is a spiritual work whereby we take the we take thoughts about God and his law and get them into our hearts so that we are affected spiritually by what we're considering. 
And until uh, what you are thinking about actually does something to you so that you are affected, well, then you haven't really meditated at all. So you have to preach to yourself. Not only that, but in order to underscore this idea of what meditation involves, he speaks of the law as his constant companion. He says, it is my meditation all the day. Also, for they are ever with me. Verse 98, the commandments of God. Again, let me give you what Matthew Henry says about this. A good man, wherever he goes, carries his Bible along with him, if not in his hands, yet in his head and in his heart. So think of what he is describing here, just in these first two verses. The way to meditate is to be always thinking about, to be thinking deeply, to be guided by our thoughts and personally affected by them and ultimately changed by them. And we also see, as he later says in verse 103, that this act of meditation is one of pure joy and delight. That's, again, one of the surprising discoveries is how much we enjoy this process of meditation. Verse 103, how sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. I am amazed by meditation, how much I delight in deep thoughts of your word. It gives pleasure, you see, He says, to the soul, not to the body, but to the inner man. What I find in thinking of God's law is better than any carnal pleasure I can find in the world. Uh, The sweetest taste to the mouth or anything like that. It simply cannot compare. It brings spiritual joy and happiness to my soul, which is the best kind. And then you also see how all of this is a kind of spiritual test. To ourselves. The question is, do we meditate upon God's law? How do we really feel about God and his law? Do we think about it at all? What kinds of thoughts do we have? How often do we think of it? What feelings do we have inwardly as we think of it? And if not, why not? You see, when we read him expressing the heart and soul of Old Testament devotion, we begin to ask ourselves whether that same devotion is found in our hearts. And so all of these are the sorts of questions which which reveal whether this psalm can be spoken by us. And yet I wonder if you noticed that just by asking them, we've already begun to meditate on this very subject. And so we're already on our way and closer than ever to experiencing the pure spiritual joy expressed here. Just begin to ask yourself, can I say what he says here and then begin to evaluate it? And then you see you've begun to meditate upon the law and your relationship to it and how you feel about it. So we have some sense here of what it is that the believer experiences and learns by meditation on this subject, the law of God. What he sees as he meditates on God's law is its superlative loveliness. So that he's able to say once more, oh, how I love your law. Much as the believer feels about Christ and the gospel. As he meditates upon these things, he finds that he loves them more and more. And the more he meditates and takes in the riches of God's law by a close and careful study and quiet and constant meditation, the more he finds that he loves it. And so he finds he thinks of it more and more. 
Here is something I'm saying that he finds that he loves and loves to think about. But let us see why he loves it, which is the second main point. How he comes to love it by meditation. Why he loves it and what he discovers by meditation. Something like this under three headings. First, he loves it because it is lovely itself. Before we seek uh, to see what it is the believer gains by the law and by meditating upon the law, which he expresses in verses 98 through 104, let us first see that the believer is able and ought to love God's law simply for its own sake. In other words, the statement, oh, how I love your law, is able to stand on its own simply because in his meditation of it, he discovers its own loveliness, not as something Again, simply whereby he gains things which are lovely, even though that's also true. But it's something which is lovely in itself and which ought to be loved for its own sake. To behold God's law is to behold something that is lovely. Something so lovely that the believer cannot help but express his strong love for it. For there we we behold something of God himself who is altogether lovely. We see him, uh, as we've seen in Exodus, expressing his own will to us, even as he is revealing himself. His will for his people. And in that will, what we discover about God, especially, as for instance in the Ten Commandments, and especially there, is his love for righteousness and his hatred for sin. We also see his character and his glory. We behold the glory of God in the law of God. And we hear his voice and are delighted by it. Verse 102. I have not departed from your judgments for you yourself have taught me. To be instructed in the laws to be taught by him. It is to have him as our teacher. And we see in the law, as Paul expresses in Romans chapter 7, something that is spiritual and good and lovely. Something that we delight in, in the inward man. That's actually what he says if you go back and look at Romans chapter 7. I delight in it. Even if we find with Paul, sadly, we're unable to keep it. Even if we're unable to keep it, still, we love it. Paul loved it. He just laments that he wasn't able to keep it. He doesn't lament that the law was something that was bad. No, he says it's good. He says, I delighted in the inner man. But even then, you see, the loveliness of it appears to him. Even in this distressing experience he is describing, he cannot help but admire and express his love for the law. We should also think here of the Sermon on the Mount. What is the Sermon on the Mount if not an experience? Uh, exposition of the law of God. Jesus says as much in the very beginning. And is there any sermon in all of scripture more lovely than the Sermon on the Mount? Any sermon more useful? Any sermon more delighted in uh, by Christians throughout the ages? I doubt that there is. And can we not love that law which our Lord was pleased to preach and unfold and expound while he dwelt among us? So I'm saying that the law is lovely considered Uh, Purely from its own standpoint. Purely for its own sake. But it's also lovely. Number two. Because of what we gain by it. Which is what he tells us. 
in verses 98 through 104. He tells us why he loves it. Well, again, remember, we gain nothing by the law without meditation. But with meditation, we gain much. First, he says, wisdom. You, through your commandments, make me wiser than my enemies. You make me wise. And you notice again, with God as our teacher, what he is expressing. It is God who makes us wise. Not the world, not the philosophy of the world. Not even the theologians of the church, but God himself. He does so by his commandments. They are given to us to make us wise. Wise especially in the things of God. He who deals with the commandments, takes them in the heart, meditates them, becomes wise in this way. And what is wisdom? Just think of that question too. He says, by your commandments, you have made me wise. But what does that even mean? Well, true wisdom, very simply, is knowing what is best. What is the best thing to do? And that's the kind of question that faces us constantly throughout life. But the commandments, you see, were given to tell us what is best and what is not. Which way to go, which way to avoid. They even tell us what to hate. Verse 104. Well, let me read verse 101 as well. I have restrained my feet from the evil way. The commandments say, do not go that way. But they even tell you, I want you to hate it. Through your precepts, I get understanding. Therefore, I hate every false way. Don't just despise uh, or, or avoid it with your feet. Avoid it with your heart. In the realm of your desires, set your heart against these things. But you also see... He says, it's very interesting to notice this. He doesn't just say, they make me wise, or you've made me wise. I keep saying they. Not the commandments, but God himself through the commandments has made us wise. But wiser than my enemies. Now that's the kind of question you have to pause, or statement you have to pause and consider. Why did he say that? You make me wiser than my enemies. But with a moment's thought, you suddenly realize what it is he's getting at. If you remember, and if you're familiar with the Psalms, the Psalms speak in this way all the time. Uh, David especially was one who was pursued and was surrounded constantly by his enemies. And in this distressing experience, he cried out many of these Psalms for deliverance. Well, the Psalms, again, are expressions of devotion. And what we realize as we begin to pray the Psalms ourselves and to have a devotion like we find here is that we are getting closer to God all the time. But the closer we get to God, the other thing we find is the more enemies we have. And more and more, uh, what is expressed in the Psalms begin to make sense. Not only our desire for God, but the distress that our enemies are causing us. And yet, look at, look at how he looks at his enemies here. What are they compared to God? The thing about evil is that it thrives by folly. He calls it every false way. Evil deals in falsehoods. And if only it can get us to embrace its folly, then it might make us evil too. But the man who lives close to God and who keeps his commandments close at heart is too wise to fall into such folly. He's wiser than his enemies, you see, though they surround him. Try as they might, they can never make him a fool like themselves. And so all of their assaults are useless. This is what a man realizes as he meditates upon the commandments of God. For they are ever with me, he says. Not his enemies, but God's commandments. And so 
He is wiser than his enemies. But he also gains very closely uh, connected with the idea of wisdom, understanding, which he also says several times. That is, through the commandments of God, he understands what others do not. He understands more than his teachers. He understands more than the ancients. Both of those phrases you'll find in this uh, in these verses. In other words, what he's saying is, is that there is an understanding here which you uh, gain by the law, which you cannot gain anywhere else. An understanding which is gained by meditating and by keeping the commandments. What does he understand that others do not? Well, the first thing he understands very obviously is God himself. He understands through the commandments the will of God. And again, obviously, this is something which you can never understand or hope to know in any other way. God is expressing his will and his desire. And he's revealing to us something of himself. How else can we know him but by his precepts? Would we try to imagine what God thinks is best ourselves rather than be taught by him? Would we seek to please him in a way other than by his law and his commandments? So through the law comes a knowledge of God. But the man who meditates upon the law also understands himself. This is something which Calvin especially points out in his treatment of the Ten Commandments and the Institutes. In fact, Calvin points this out throughout the Institutes. And that is that man always thinks too highly of himself always seeking to justify himself and his ways before God. And he does so until the law abases his pride by showing him how far he falls short of the glory of God. It's the law which lays low the pride of man and the law alone which can do so by revealing to him the righteousness of God, which he does not possess and which he falls short of constantly. He also understands more generally, not just his own heart, but the heart of man. He looks around at the world around him and suddenly he understands. Suddenly it makes sense that every man falls short of the glory of God. Every man is a transgressor. Every man is living in rebellion to God. What he notices about mankind in general is not his fundamental goodness, but his fundamental badness. He sees and understands the sinfulness of man. And he does not entertain illusions about man's goodness and virtue. It's one of the amazing, uh, almost stunning illusions that is being perpetuated today. How virtuous man is and can be. No, the, the godly man knows true virtue can only be found in God's law. Everything else is empty and worldly and sinful. But then he gains something else. He gains godliness. By the law, his path is enlightened, as he says in another place. It's like a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. He knows by the law, as I said before, what is right and what is wrong, the things he should be doing and the things to avoid. You see, again, notice the emphasis, just as we find in the Proverbs, the way of wisdom is not simply not to do certain things, but to avoid them, to detest them, to steer clear of them. He also learns what to love and what to hate. His heart through the law is being conformed more and more to the heart of God. And yes, that too is is part of true godliness. Not just loving what is lovely, but hating what is detestable. Hating what God hates. 
It's the kind of thing man today seems unwilling to say, that it is okay for us to hate certain things, and yet is something which is expressed throughout the Psalms. I hate every false way. Verse 104. In fact, as I pointed out many times, Psalm 5, God hates the wicked. Not just their ways, but themselves. To love what God loves and to hate what God hates. Do you see the strength of the affections and of the emotions that the law brings about in our hearts? But the trouble with the wicked and even with the nominal Christian is that not being trained and instructed by God's law, they're too casual about sin and the ways of sin. They love nothing. They hate nothing. Everything about them is lukewarm. They tread too carelessly on the path and the way of the sinner. They walk in the counsel of the ungodly. They stand in the path of sinners. They sit in the seat of the scornful without knowing it. Psalm 1. And thus they entertain a costly alliance with the world and its sinful ways and become fools. Not trained by God, but trained in falsehoods and folly. But the godly man, the man who can express this psalm truly, the man of understanding and wisdom and godliness, is the one who understands that the sinful ways are not only false, but hateful. He despises them. They are filled with deceit and folly. There is nothing good found in them, only harm and destruction. Therefore, he says, I hate every false way and I restrain my feet from walking upon them. Verse 101, in order, he says, to keep God's word. I have restrained my feet from every evil way that I may keep your word. How else could I ever hope to keep them? But you see, this also works in reverse as well. It's by keeping the commands... And it is by avoiding and shunning the false ways and the hateful ways that we get the understanding and the wisdom that comes from God's law. In other words, true meditation leads us to keep the law and to walk in it. And until it has, you see, it not only affects your heart, I said, but it actually changes you. It does something to you. Then you've really meditated upon it. Until you begin to keep it, you haven't really meditated upon it. Think about this. Why did God give the law? What was his purpose? Did he just want us to think about it and have pleasant thoughts and express to one another the loveliness of it? No, he didn't do it for that reason. He gave us the law because he wanted us to keep it and to do so with our whole hearts. He wanted to change our hearts, but also our lives and to give us a rule for living. And so it's a kind of testimony of how much he really did love God's law and to think happy thoughts of it and to taste its sweetness that he really did keep it in a wholesome way. In other words, no man can say, I love God's law if he doesn't keep it. But the man who keeps the law of God and who restrains his feet from the false way is the man who is able to say with a clean heart and honestly, I love God's law. And so I'm saying that he who would be godly must be a lover of God's law. He must meditate on it day and night. He must be guided by it all the day. And he must make it the rule of his conduct. He must take it to heart and see that by God's commandments, God has become our teacher and our ruler and our guide. But let me also say this. 
as I've reflected upon my own teaching and preaching on the Ten Commandments, what I am discovering, and I think you would agree that the careful, detailed way we're going through those Ten Commandments is a kind of sustained meditation upon the law. We are taking the law and we are dissecting it and examining it and seeing how deep the commands really run in terms of what they command and what they forbid. What I've noticed throughout this sustained meditation already, and we're only through three commandments, is that it it has become for me an effectual means of repentance. Already. I'm already seeing ways in my own life, and and David was expressing this in Psalm 19, if you remember, revealed to me hidden faults, uh, guide me out of my presumptuous sins, and my life is filled with that, and I know yours is as well. Well, how do I find them out? By carefully considering God's law. Suddenly I'm seeing obvious ways that I'm sinning. And yet, I also realize it would not be so obvious if I did not allow the law to do its work upon my life. And so already I'm finding that I'm becoming wiser and more godly as the Lord instructs me. And as he adjusts my conscience by the compass of his law. He's reorienting my life and my heart to himself and his desires and fashioning me after himself, breaking me from the mold of the world that has slowly crept in. And the more this happens, the more I find the commitment growing in my heart to say things like this. I've restrained my feet from every evil way that I may keep your word. I have not departed from your from your judgments for you yourself have taught me. Now, I'm not just speaking of myself. I hope I'm speaking of you. This is the kind of experience the believer has, the kind of happy experience he has as the law does its searching work upon his life. What I find is that it is becoming more and more unthinkable to me that I should do anything or to allow anything to creep in that would prevent me from keeping God's word and sit under his instruction. Yes, and also I am finding Verses 103 and verses uh, and 104 to be true as well. How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Through your precepts I get understanding, therefore I hate every false way. I hope you're beginning to see what all this involves. When we really meditate upon God's word. What I'm saying is the happy experience of the believer. Do you notice as well a note of confidence here and defiance? We can surely add that to our list. The more he learns and the more he takes it to heart, the more he not only falls in love with God's word and his command, but the more boldly he defies his enemies in every false way. Somehow they seem to tempt him less. He isn't interested anymore in even going near them, let alone doing them. The false joy offered in sin cannot compare to the sweetness which he finds in God's law. And even as I say, thinking about God's law, even that is better than sinning. How foolish it now appears that he should ever depart from them, the true ways, and how unwilling he is to do so. The more you study the law of God, the more you will find that your commitment is growing to keep it. But then let me say this as well in closing. And that is the loveliness of the law. I'm answering the question, why does he love it? Or perhaps I should ask it this way. Why do we love it? 
My answer is that the loveliness of the law appears more strongly in the new covenant than in former days. In other words, where there was a kind of enmity between law and gospel before Christ came, which we find being described in the New Testament. Now there is harmony. Let us see that there is harmony between law and gospel in the life of the believer. This is something which, again, the New Testament makes so clear to us. There Christ tells his disciples that the righteousness of the kingdom of God is found only in God's law. And that that is a law which he expects us to keep. Let me read what he says. Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 through 20. He says, do not think I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For assuredly, I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or tittle will by no means pass from the law till all is fulfilled. Whoever, therefore, breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches men so shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say to you that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. It's amazing to me that anyone, any serious Christian, could think that the law has no place in the kingdom of God that Christ brings, given that statement. And yet people are still saying it today. The great man in the kingdom of God is the one who does and teaches the least commandments. So deep and abiding is his commitment to God's law. We also see, thinking of what was said in Hebrews, about the blessings of a new covenant in contrast to an old covenant, citing the prophecy of Jeremiah chapter 31, that the blessings of the new covenant are found in the twin blessings of God's forgiving our sins, And also writing his law on our hearts. In fact, that comes first. Listen to what he said. For if that covenant had been faultless, then no place would have been sought for a second. Because finding fault with them, he says, now quoting Jeremiah 31. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not according to the covenant I made with their fathers in the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt. Because they did not continue in my covenant, and I disregarded them, says the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their mind and write them on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Uh, And and so on. He he begins to speak as well as the knowledge of God, the forgiveness of sins. And you know, just as I read that, it, it strikes me. That he's not just saying... I'm putting the law on your heart as something that you'll know. But in speaking of it placed upon your heart, it's so obvious. He's ingraining it in our very affections and desires. He's creating in us a strong desire to keep God's law and a strong love for God's law. Obviously, that's what he means when he speaks of placing it not just on our minds so that we understand, but writing it upon our hearts. And then, as I say after that, he says, they'll all know me and I will remember their sins no more. But do you notice there that the ideas of forgiveness And then of God's law placed into our very hearts are not presented as being at odds as the new covenant comes to us. That God should both command and forgive. Those are not contrary ideas. Not according to the logic of a new covenant. But rather, the ideas of God commanding and forgiving are seen as flowing together as twin blessings to the believer. Now, again, through a new covenant, enacted and ratified through the blood of Jesus Christ, our great high priest. And it is along these lines, and this is the point I'm 
I've been trying to get at here uh, under this third heading. Just to be able to say this one thing. According to this, as our confession says, that the law and the gospel are not at odds, but they sweetly comply. I love that phrase. They sweetly comply under the gospel. They're not contrary principles under a new covenant, but they are friends in the heart of the believer. And they are friends throughout that covenant. And so they sweetly comply, let me say, in three ways. I, I just said the third way, uh, but uh, let, me, let me get to that in its time. The first way it sweetly complies, let us see, in the New Testament and the New Covenant, is in the life of Christ. Christ is one who did the will of God, even as he was made a substitute for sin. That, too, was part of the will of God. But in his life, And in his sufferings and in his death, what we notice about him is that he ever kept the law of God and he never broke it once, even as he suffered its penalty. Lo, I have come to do your will. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 7. Well, let me read the verse. Therefore, behold, I have come in the volume of the book. It is written of me to do your will. And ever did he do his will. Well, let me put it as simply as I can. What can we say about Christ and his doing and dying? It's that Jesus Christ Love the law of God. He loved to do the will of God. He loved to keep it. He even loved to bear its penalty in order that he might redeem us. And so we see the sweet compliance in a second way, and that is at the cross. For there Christ upholds the righteousness of God's law as demanding sin be punished, but at the same time securing a perfect forgiveness for sin by trading his place with ours. And it is in this way that Paul says in Romans chapter 3, verse 21, that we do not break the law, but we uphold it by this gospel of grace of ours. Glorying in the cross as we do, he says, not verse 21, excuse me, verse 31. Do we then make void the law through faith? Certainly not. On the contrary, we establish it. How? Well, we establish it by pointing to a way of salvation that upholds and doesn't break the law. But it complies as well, and I said this already, but let me close with this, in the heart of the believer. Not just in his life, you see, but in his heart. For there the Spirit is doing his work. The believer who is not opposed to the law, he doesn't hate it, he doesn't set it aside. No, he loves it. He embraces it as one of the chief and cardinal blessings of the new covenant. Now he finds the work of the Spirit as including this law writing on his heart. And every act of the Spirit is an act that he loves. And so I think it is right to say that this psalm, Psalm 119, is better said by us even than when it was first penned. We have a better ability to profess all that is said here. Oh, how I love your law. It's my meditation all the day. You, through your commandments, make me wiser than my enemies for they're ever with me. I have more understanding than all my teachers, for your testimonies are my meditation. I understand more than the ancients because I keep your precepts. I have restrained my feet from every evil way that I may keep your word. I have not departed from your judgment, for you yourself have taught me. How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Through your precepts I get understanding. Therefore I hit every false way. A psalm for the Christian, and which befits the Christian even more than it did in the Old Testament days. These are things which ought to flow freely from our lips because of the powerful ministry of the Holy Spirit in us. And also because of all that Christ has done for us in bringing a new covenant. 
so that now these words are better said by the believer of a new covenant. For as wise as David and others got by this law, we are wiser still. Or at least the potential is there. We ought to be. And really it's our duty to be sure that we do not waste our opportunity. Which I think is the whole point of the book of Hebrews. Realize your opportunity. Realize your privilege. Do you understand what it means to be recipients now of a new covenant? And so let us all be great lovers of God's law. Those who meditate on it. Those who keep it. And those who get understanding and wisdom by it. Amen. And let us now come to the table.